I can't begin to tell you how good it is to uh, to be back. I feel like I've been gone for about a hundred years, but uh, it's really good to be here. Uh, we spent uh, three weeks camping our way through Yellowstone and uh, Banff and Waterton uh, National Parks, uh, Glacier, Kootenai, and spent a week on Priest Lake, and it was just a wonderful three weeks. We were actually celebrating our 30th wedding anniversary, and uh, visiting some of these places uh, uh, as a special way of remembering our uh, our wedding anniversary. I, it was one of the most humbling experiences for me in my life. Every Almost every place we went, uh, Carolyn outfished me. She, uh, <laughs> she caught more fish and bigger fish than, than I did. Uh, with one memorable occasion, we were fishing the Priest River, and there were three little boys that lived up on the hill. Can you hear me? up on the hill behind us, and they came down to watch us, and uh, they were chatting with Carolyn and watching me uh, uh, flay at the water. And, and finally, one of them came over to me and said, uh, Sir, would you like to use her pole? <laughs> <clears throat> A little bit later, uh, Carolyn was uh, sharing something of the Lord's love with this little boy, and, and his little brother was standing there listening to it all, and and uh, he asked her a question. He said, Carolyn, what does B.C. mean? She hadn't even used that phrase, but for some reason it brought it to his mind. And uh, he said, what does B.C. mean? And before she could answer, his big brother answered. He said, it means before cowboys. <laughs> i got to write that one down. That one i got to remember. <laughs> But as I said, this was a special celebration of our uh, 30th wedding anniversary, and it brought to mind uh, uh, one thing about our wedding that I wish I could have done over. That was a memorable occasion and and a wonderful time. But there's one thing that Carolyn wanted me to do for our wedding that I just couldn't do. She asked me to sing to her as she came down down the aisle, sing a love song. Now, she would know better than to ask me that now, because she knows me better than she did then. But I I just couldn't do it. I knew I would be too embarrassed, or I would laugh out loud, or in some way I would ruin the whole thing. uh, And I just wasn't able to do it. And to this day, it's very difficult for me to do that. I'm just not a very romantic fellow. I wish I were more like that, but but I'm not. And when we get around to talking about singing love songs to Jesus, that troubles me, too. Because in my mind, Jesus is a man. That's the way I think of him. And it's difficult for me to sing a love song to Jesus. But I've learned something about expressing my love uh, uh, to my Lord. And I've learned it from the Psalms. And I'd like to share that with you. Share a love song to Jesus from the Psalms and teach you and me and all of us how to express our love appropriately appropriately to our Lord. Will you turn with me, please, to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. The Psalms, as you know, are are songs. They were intended to be be sung. There was a a melody line that went with with these Psalms. We're unaware of what it is, but it's, uh, it's clear that these were intended to be sung. There was a choir director who apparently made the arrangements, and you notice in the title line that this, uh, this psalm is given over to the choir director or the director of music. 
The tune of this psalm is lilies. We don't know what that tune is. I tried singing the psalm to the lily of the valley, but it didn't work. So there must have been some other tune that, that they had in mind. It's of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were a guild of musicians in the temple. And this is either dedicated to them for their purpose so that it could be arranged for them to sing, or one of the sons of Korah wrote the, uh, the song. It's called a maskeel. The Hebrew word sekel, from which this noun is taken, simply means insight. So this is a, the, the, the footnote in the, in the uh, uh, NIV says this is a musical term or a literary term. I'm more inclined to think that this is a psalm that's intended to give us insight. It teaches us. It wises us up. gives us gives us wisdom. And it's called a wedding song. At least that's what the NIV uh, that's the title that the, wet, that the NIV gives to it. But the word that's translated wedding here is really the same word from which my name comes from in Hebrew, Dawid or David. It means beloved or loved one. So this is a love song. That's what it is. It's a love song. And uh, it's written about a wedding. The occasion is a wedding, a royal wedding of the king and, and his queen, his bride, his, his queen-to-be, his bride, wife-to-be. Uh, and it's a love song to Jesus. That's the interesting thing. Now, one thing you need to know about these psalms is that all of them can either be put into the mouth of Jesus or they're said with reference to him. Now, that's something that's not widely known about these psalms. Originally, they were written for the king of Israel. Either the king led the congregation in worship, and these words were put into his mouth, or these hymns were sung to the king, one or the other. But... Uh, they, they knew that the ultimate purpose of, of these psalms was to glorify and magnify and praise the Messiah, the one who is to come. And uh, as a matter of fact, that's the way the New Testament uses this psalm. This, this psalm is quoted twice in the New Testament, and both times it refers to Jesus. For example, uh, down in verse 2, uh, the psalm says, since God has blessed you forever. Now, that's the, that's the phrase that Paul uses in Romans 9 when he refers to the, some of the distinctives of Israel. Of whom came the Messiah who is God blessed forever. And this is a direct quotation from the Greek translation of this, uh, this psalm, this line in Psalm 45. And then in Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1.8, the line, your throne, O God, will last forever. As a matter of fact, the, the, the entire verse and most of verse 7 is quoted in Hebrews 1 with reference to the Son. The argument of, in the opening chapters of Hebrews is that the Son is greater than uh, the angels, than Moses, than the law, than the priests. Uh, and uh, that difference uh, is spelled out in chapter 1 in terms of the angels. He's greater than the angels. The angels are said to be messengers, ministers of God. To the Son he said, and then he quotes uh, this line from the psalm. To the Son he said, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So there's no question that, that this, this psalm ultimately refers to our Lord Jesus, and it can be sung to him. Now, uh, I'm sure when uh, uh, one of the sons of Korah or whoever wrote this psalm first wrote it and brought it to the choir director, he didn't understand it. He must have thought, now, you, you probably should take this back and tone it down a little bit because it doesn't exactly fit the king. But uh, the prophet who wrote it would say, well, I don't understand it, but the Spirit of God told me to put it down this way, and this is what I want you to arrange for, for worship. So though it was originally sung to the king, its ultimate purpose is to magnify, glorify our Lord. Now, he begins with a, 
uh, with a brief introduction. It tells us something of his state of mind that, that caused him to write this psalm. My heart is stirred by a good word, he says, by a noble theme. As I recite my verses for the king. And this is dedicated to the king and is said about him. But remember, behind the king stands our Lord Jesus, who is the king par excellence. And so these are verses for him. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. That is, the words are flowing. My heart is full, he says. And my words come readily. They come easily. No problem to, to say what's on my heart. Because my heart's so full, he says. The word that's translated stirred here is a word that only occurs here in this psalm. And we wouldn't know exactly what it meant, except that the noun form of this verb occurs in, in the book of Leviticus for stew. S-T-E-W, stew. And uh, it has the idea of something that's been cooked for a long, long time. I can remember my mother taking one of these big iron pots, putting the meat and all the vegetables and everything in the, in the pot, putting it on the back burner, and it would cook back there all day. And until the evening came, and then we'd have stew, and the meat would be soft, and everything would be so flavorful. She put it on the back burner and let it cook. Now, that's the idea in this verb. My heart is cooking, is the idea. I'm not stewed up. Our idiom means to, to be resentful or bitter or angry, but stewed in the sense that I've been stewing on this for a long time. I've been thinking about this a lot, he's saying. My mind is filled with these thoughts, so it's very easy for me to say what I have to say. It's very easy for me to act in a certain way because behavior does come from right thinking. Our view of reality determines how we behave, what we say and how we behave. And once we get our view of, of what's real and what isn't real straight, then it has a tremendous impact upon the way we react to things. I was talking to a fisherman when I was in Banff and uh, they told us there were bells on our fishing jackets up there because of the, the grizzlies. You have to share the stream with, uh, with the bears. And I wasn't really excited about that, but I was going to go along with it. And uh, I was talking to a fisherman friend of his camp where we were camped. And he said, I don't know why we have to wear these bells. He said, uh, he said they told me it's because of the bears. But he said, I don't want the bears to know where I am. <laughs> and uh, I explained, I said, well, I don't know much about bears. And I'm not really excited about sharing a stream with them either. But as I understand... Uh, the bells uh, tip off the bears to where you are, and a bear that knows where you are is not as dangerous as a bear that you surprise. And so I said, I don't know about you, but I, you know, I'm going to wear the bell. bell. And he said to his wife, let's go buy a bell. Uh, once you understand the truth, once you understand reality, it determines the way you act. Now, that's very important to understand about this psalm, because if we really understand the truth in this psalm, it will vastly impact the way we think about ourselves. It will change our behavior. Now let's look at it. Uh, the psalm uh, is divided into two parts. It begins with a, uh, with a word of, uh, of praise to the king, and then in verse 10, to the bride. Verse to the king. You, he says, are the most excellent of men. And your lips have been anointed with grace, since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor uh, and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in behalf of truth, humility, righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. 
Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From palaces adorned with ivory, the music of the strings make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of, of Ophir. He begins by describing him as the most excellent of men. One of the early translations of this, uh, of this psalm, one of the early Jewish translations, inserts at this point, you're the most excellent of men, O King Messiah. They, know, they knew to whom this psalm was uh, uh, was intended to be applied, not merely to the king of that day, whoever it may be. We don't know how to date this psalm, so we don't know which Judean king is referred to, which wedding is commemorated here, but ultimately applies to, to the Messiah, to the Lord Jesus. And he begins by saying, you're the most excellent of men. Literally beautiful. You're beautiful. It's the word from which the name of the modern city, city Haifa in Israel comes. That word means beautiful, beautiful city. And uh, it's the word that's used throughout the uh, Song of Songs for the bride when the groom says to her, You're beautiful, my dear. How beautiful you are. Now, that's an odd thing to say about a man. You're beautiful. We don't usually say that. Uh, And certainly we don't describe uh, a man's outward appearance that way. We might say it's a good-looking man and it's a handsome man, but but not, not beautiful. And as a matter of fact, when you think about the Lord Jesus, the... uh, the, the, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, tells us that he wasn't particularly attractive outwardly. I don't know why we think that our Lord was handsome. There's no indication that he was. The, the uh, prophet says of the servant in Isaiah 53, he has no beauty that we should desire him or that we should be particularly attracted to him. I think he just looked like an average, run-of-the-mill, garden-variety man. Uh, it wasn't his outward appearance that attracted people to him. It was his intrinsic beauty. It was his inner beauty. That's what, that's what attracted uh, people. And what follows, I think, in this psalm are those, those characters, those quality traits, characteristics, quality traits that can be described as, as beautiful. The first is his gracious words. Verse 2, your lips, he says, have been anointed with grace. Our Lord had such uncanny insight into reality. He could cut through all the, all the guff, all the nonsense, and just get right to the heart of things. There's one incident where uh, he was speaking to a vast crowd, and oh, a man in the group said, uh, Master, he said, make my brother share the inheritance with me. And Jesus looked at the man and at his brother, who happened to be in the crowd, and he said, who, who, first he said, who made you, who made me a judge over you? In other words, this is not something I should decide. I'm, I'm not a, a judge of, in legal matters. And then he said to both of them, it's interesting, he said to both of them, beware of greed. So he just cut through all the nonsense. This man uh, ostensibly was calling out for justice. 
But Jesus saw that the heart of the, of the matter was greed. Greed in the heart of the man who wouldn't share his, half, his brother's half of the inheritance. And greed in the part of the man who was demanding justice. And, and it just strikes me that so often our demands for justice are nothing more than that. They're just materialism and greed. And our Lord just cut through all the baloney, all the nonsense, right to the heart of the issue. Just penetrating words of, of truth that, that characterize it. But he could say it so graciously. That's the thing. He had uh, what uh, is described in Isaiah with reference to the servant of Isaiah, the tongue of of the learned. He just knew how to say the right things at the right time. There's one incident where uh, the the court sent a squad of soldiers to arrest Jesus. And they came back empty-handed. And the officers said, why why didn't didn't you... uh, why didn't you take him into custody? And their comment was, no one ever spoke like this. They, they went to arrest him, and they were so awed by what he had to say, they couldn't lay a hand on it. Now, that, that's one of the things you see in our Lord as you, as you read through the Gospels, something of, of his beauty in speech. He just, he just knew how to say the right thing at the right time. There's this perfect mixture of, of truth and love. And the reason... The reason that he was able to speak this way is because God had blessed him. You see, uh, as Jesus put it, what the Father says to me, I say to you. In other words, if you want to know how how God would speak to you if he walked into your, your bedroom tonight or into your living room this afternoon, he would speak to you the way Jesus spoke to people. It's gracious words. Penetrating words of truth, but gracious words. And that's one aspect of his beauty. His lips were anointed with grace. Uh, the other is described in verse three and following, where he is, uh, uh, where he's described as a as a glorious conquering hero. Gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Strap, strap your sword on your thigh. Clothe yourself with splendid splendor and majesty. Our Lord is like a a knight in shining armor, a king knight who straps on his armor, sits uh, astride his his great war horse, and goes out. For the cause of truth, you see, the reason he rides forth is not to conquer for himself, but he does does so on behalf of truth. Now, there are three attributes here, truth, humility, and righteousness. We should probably translate this way, truth, colon, and then poverty slash righteousness, or poverty dash righteousness. In other words, he goes out to seek truth, justice, righteousness on behalf of the poor. The oppressed, the, the little guy, the born loser, the, 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 the person that, that can't get it right, he comes to rescue. I was reading uh, uh, this last week about a man who thought of himself as a loser. He could never get anything right. Went to see a psychiatrist, got some help from him. One day he walked into the psychiatrist's office and he said, it's working, it's working, it's working. Something finally turned out right for me, and the psychiatrist said, what happened? And he said, well, he said, I was in my kitchen buttering an English muffin, and I dropped the muffin on the floor, and it landed butter side up. And he held the muffin out, the psychiatrist took the muffin and looked at the evidence, and he said, Sam, you buttered the wrong side of the muffin. <laughs> and there are people like that. You know, we're, we're like that. We're just, we're losers. It's the little guy that he's concerned about, the, the battered wife, the abused 
a child, sexually or verbally abused child, the child of an alcoholic, the spouse of an alcoholic, the people that are entrapped and oppressed by their own behavior, by their their habituated to uh, various sins and there are things that, that oppress their souls. They're alcoholics or drug addicts. Or they have, have uh, eating disorders, various other problems. They're habituated to a, a bad temper, those sorts of things. He's for you. Do you understand that? He's for you. comes to rescue you. And in time, he will. Uh, he, he's on, on your side. He's not against you. He's for you. Hans Kuhn wrote something I'd like to read to you. Put it so well. He's talking about this, what he calls the scandal of Jesus. The absolutely unpardonable thing was not his concern for the sick, the cripples, the lepers, the possessed, not even his part- partisanship for the poor, humble people. The real trouble was that he got involved with moral failures, with absolutely irreligious and immoral people, people morally and politically suspect, so many dubious, obscure, abandoned, hopeless types existing as an eradicable evil on the fringe of every society. This was the real scandal. Did he really have to go so far? This attitude in in practice is notably different from the general behavior of religious people. Here, clearly, the very foundations of religion are shaken. Traitors, swindlers, and adulterers are put in the right as against the devout and the righteous. The depraved good-for-nothing is preferred to his brother who has worked hard at home. The hated foreigner... And what is more, a heretic is, is set us as an example to the natives. And at the end, they all got the same reward. Righteousness is turned upside down. What kind of lunatic justice is this, which in fact abolishes all sacred standards and reverses all order of rank, making the last first and the first last? What kind of dangerous and naive love is this, which does not know its limits, the frontier between fellow countrymen and foreigners, party members and non-members, between neighbors and distant people, between the honorable and dishonorable callings, between moral and immoral, good and bad people, as if association, as if disassociation were not absolutely necessary here, as if we ought not to judge in these cases, as if we could always forgive, and Jesus did forgive, endlessly forgive, seven and seventy times, and he goes on to say he, he forgave every Tom, Dick, and Harry. Doesn't make any difference. How big our failure is, he's for us, comes to our rescue, wants to purify, wants to change, wants us to become what what we want to become. And as Paul puts it, if God is for us, who can be against us? Say, doesn't make any difference who's oppressing you. He's for you, and he comes riding on his great war charger to rescue Now, uh, there's a third thing that he says about our Lord, and this is the truly remarkable thing. He tells us who he really is. Who is this whose lips are so gracious and whose deeds are so glorious? Nothing more or less than God. Your throne, O God, he says, will last forever and ever. Here's where the Old Testament bursts out of its banks. You wouldn't expect this. This sort of thing was never said of the, of the uh, human king of Judah. The other nations called their kings gods, but, but never the Jews in any absolute sense. They always thought of their king as God's representative. He was his regent. 
they, they did think of the throne as the throne of God. That's interesting. Solomon built a, a seven-tiered uh, pedestal on which he placed his throne. And he called it the throne of God. But he didn't think of himself as God sitting on that throne. He realized that he was holding down the job until God himself came and sat on that throne. Every one of these Judean kings, the sons of David, saw that one of these days the Messiah would come who was nothing more or less than God himself who would sit on the throne. And in the Old Testament, they didn't understand this. This is an example of what Peter talks about when he says the prophets didn't have a clue what they were talking about. They often said things that were way beyond their understanding. But uh, we know now, looking back in retrospect, that this is the Lord Jesus, who's God himself, who came to sit on the throne of, of Israel. Interesting, the, the, the first Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is about the second century B.C., that's before Christ, not before Cowboys, uses the same phrase that, that's used in Hebrews 1. Your, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. They, they understood Understand. So it's it's God who who comes to to rescue. And uh, interestingly enough, in verse seven, He is a God who has a God. Did you hear that when I read it? You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions. So here's a paradox which was inexplicable until the incarnation. When Jesus came, He was God. Who had a God. Now, I'm not going to explain that to you. I can't explain that to you. But he was God who talked about his Father in heaven and who prayed to his Father. He was, he was God, eternal God. But he was a God who had a God. And you see, what this tells us is, is the way God looks at you, the way God thinks about you. If God were speaking to you today, if he were standing here talking to you, his words would be gracious and loving and kind. And uh, he would ride to your defense because he loves you, you see. Now, the verses that follow describe the uh, wedding procession. Verse 8, all your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. He's uh, adorned for the wedding. From palaces ordained with ivory, the music of the strings makes you glad. You know, in, in, in Eastern society, how a wedding was done, they... The, the groom would leave his father's house, father and mother's house, and he'd make his way through the streets of the city, and the people would follow him, and they would be singing and dancing and chanting and playing tambourines and shouting, and they'd come to the home of the bride to take the bride and take her back all the way through the streets, and the whole town would turn out to sing and rejoice on behalf of the bridegroom until they got back to the, back to the father's house. And this is the picture you have here of our Lord leaving ivory palaces. Historically, the king leaving his ivory palace, but, but ultimately our Lord leaving heaven. And coming to earth to fetch you and me so that we'll always be with him. One of the most striking statements in the New Testament is in, in, in our Lord's high priestly prayer when he says at the end, I pray, Lord that you may sanctify them and glorify them so they may be with me forever. He's talking about you and he's talking about me. Why would God want the likes of me to live with him forever? Because he loves me. And because he left, and the demonstration of that love is that he left his ivory palaces and he came to earth to fetch me. The, you'll recognize this is the text from which that hymn is taken. 
My Lord has garments so wondrous fine and myrrh their texture fills. Its fragrance reached to this heart of mine. With joy my being thrills. Out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe. Only his great redemptive love made my Savior go. I, you know, th- this is what I call evocative imagery. That's a term that I use to refer to these, these beautiful pictures in the Old Testament, which when you try to explain, you explain away. I, you know, they're hard to preach on because it's better to just picture it in your mind. Our Lord leaving his own home and coming into this world of woe to get me and you so we can live for him, with him, forever. Now, uh, he turns... He turns from consideration of the groom to the bride, and we must hasten through the last part of this song. Listen, O daughter. Oh, by the way, I didn't mention that in verse 9, she's described as a royal bride. The word that's used for bride here is a word that was used throughout the ancient uh, world for people that had blue blood in their veins, royal blood. And, And that's one way to look at ourselves. It's because we belong to the Lord, that we're considered a royal bride. When Charles and Diane were married, that was the wedding of the century. But the wedding of the century, as far as I'm concerned, is when the Lord comes back to get me and I go to be with him forever. Now, he says a word to the, uh, uh, to the bride. Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people in your father's house because the king is enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. Men of wealth will seek your favor. In other words, you'll, you'll have worth. You'll have value. Tyre, the city of Tyre, was the last word in wealth. And the daughter of, of Tyre is, is simply a Hebrew way of referring to the population, the people of Tyre, will come with a gift. Men of wealth will seek your, uh, seek your favor. They'll, they'll see you as someone useful, weighty, meaningful. You have something to give. All glorious, he says, is the prince within her chamber. She's waiting for the king to come. Her gown is interwoven with gold and embroidered garments. She is led to the king. And at this point, we could, uh, we could play, here comes, here comes the bride. Because that's, uh, this is a description of the procession. In embroidered garments, she is led to the king. Her virgin companions, that is her attendants, the wedding attendants, follow her and are brought to you. She belongs to the king. They are led in with joy and gladness. They enter the, the palace of the king. I, uh, I was, uh, one of the reasons I want to preach on this passage is because I was so struck by this on our vacation. I was sitting uh, out back of our trailer reading through this passage and meditating on it. And I read verse 11, and I almost jumped out of my seat. When I realized what this passage is saying, the King, the Lord Jesus, is enthralled by my beauty. Me? <laughs> You've got to be kidding. He loves me. He likes me. You know, he has to love people. That's a theological concept. Uh, he's intrinsically loved. God is love. So he has to love. That's not, you know, that's not as impressive to me as to realize that he likes me. Do you remember what it, what it was like when you were dating a, a girl that you really wanted to impress? And back in those days, we didn't have bucket seats. We had bed seats. And uh, she'd get in the car and she'd sit way over there. But as the date 
progressed, you know, she'd move a little closer and she's kind of inching a little bit. And you start feeling real good because you knew that she liked you. Now, do you understand the Lord moving closer and closer and closer because He likes you? He loves you. Here's this, this insanely generous love, this incredible, unconditional love that God has for us. It's mind-boggling. Brennan Manning has a wonderful illustration of this love in a little book that he wrote called The Wisdom of Accepted Tenderness. He says that the experience of our Lord's tenderness was mirrored to me quite unobtrusively in a couple's 45th wedding anniversary celebration. The husband and wife quietly withdrew some time during the festivities. I wasn't looking for them as I passed a sheltered alcove. I wasn't eavesdropping, just mesmerized. They were sitting on a love seat with only an overhead light shining indirectly on the man's face. He was staring intently at his spouse. He knew everything about her there was to know, her strengths and weaknesses, virtues and character defects, her occasional moodiness and temper tantrums, her sense of humor and sense of insecurity, uh, her nagging and her magnanimity. Nothing remained hidden. The expression in his eyes conveyed unconditional acceptance, unbearable forgiveness, Infinite patience and a tender love that kept no score of of wrongs. Not a word was exchanged. She sighed, then cried, they embraced. The spirit of accepted tenderness brings an intermittent awareness of the loving gaze of Jesus. With all the above qualities infinitely magnified and thus enables me to be alone in the midst of the most diverse and troubling activities. It is a simplicity without manuals and mirrors, goals and game plans, stress or distress. I simply rejoice in the gift. That's a good word. Just rejoice in the gift. So, someone asked Karl Barth, the great uh, European theologian who almost single-handedly turned Europe back to the Lord after the Second World War, What's the most profound theological concept you ever had? He said, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's what it's all about. He loves you unconditionally. Now that, that gives you a tremendous sense of worth. You know, you, you, cannot, you cannot develop a healthy sense of worth on the basis of, of your activity. I don't care... How competent you are, someone's going to come along and be a little bit more competent and make you feel inadequate. Someone pointed out to me a couple of weeks ago that Saul was head and shoulders above anyone else in the kingdom. He was the tallest man in Israel until he met Goliath. And in a slam dunk contest, Goliath would have slam dunked Saul, and he knew it. And he gave way to fear. See, that's what happens. If we're thinking in terms of what we can do, and what we are, we're always going to be outclassed, outmanned, outnumbered by someone, and we're going to feel inadequate. But if we understand that our worth and our value comes from our Lord Jesus and his love for us, our relationship to him, then it doesn't make any difference. When anybody says or does to us, we're still secure. We still feel significant. And that's the point of this description of her. Daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. Men of wealth will seek your favor. You're glorious. You can look at yourself and say, I'm someone important because I'm loved by the king. I belong. 
And then in verses 16 and 17, just, uh, just a brief word. This is actually a benediction on the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. Not to have sons and nor a seed was a curse in those days. Simply a blessing. You're going to have many sons. I'm reminded of, of the statement in Hebrews that he will bring many sons into captivity. To himself, you'll capture many. Incidentally, the your in verses 16 and 17 is masculine, so it has to refer back to the king, not to the, to the queen. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. You know what draws people to Christ? The nations here are the non-believing nations, the non-Israelites of the world. They'll be brought to the Lord through the, through the king. You know what draws people to, to the Lord? It's his goodness, it's his grace, it's his love. I, I was uh, at the fair last Friday and someone gave me a, just a horrible track. I, I not only wanted to tear it up, I wanted to race up and down the midway and jerk him out of people's hands and saying, please don't read this thing because it, it, it was sort of, you know, God's going to get you if you don't watch out, that sort of thing. But it is true that he's the judge and he is coming in judgment. But what people need to hear first and foremost is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the good news. That's the gospel. We need to proclaim the fact that Jesus loves us. And when we do, the nations will give praise. You praise what you appreciate, right? Isn't that so? You know, you see Anthony Carter make one of those incredible catches, and you go, wow! That's praise. Or you see those mountains up in Banff, and you say, ooh, that's beautiful. That's praise. You praise what you appreciate. And when you see what Jesus is, and you appreciate him with all your heart, then praise just flows. It's easy to talk about it. It's easy to sing love songs to him when you understand. That's why he says, forget your people and your father's house and honor him, for he is your Lord. What kind of Lord? No, he just, he just loves you. He just loves you. Unconditionally loves you. You know, the problem with most of us is that we have all kinds of wrong thinking in our heads. And our, you know, we don't know what reality is. And we, we conceive of God as uh, cruel and unjust. And he's down on us. I, I read a story this last week about a little boy that had a picture of Jesus in his wall, in his, on the wall of his room. And when he was bad, he'd always turn the picture of Jesus to the wall because he couldn't, couldn't look into Jesus' eyes because he saw reproof there. But that's not the way our Lord responds to our weakness and our failure. He has gracious, comforting words. He speaks truth to us. He penetrates to our hearts with his words, but they're gentle and kind words, and he comes to rescue us and set us free. He loves us, and he's God himself who's come to do that. And once you understand that, you feel a whole lot, whole lot better about yourself. I was watching some NFL highlight films just this last week, and, and, and everything goes so well in there. You know, the hits are always terrific, and the catches are spectacular. And it'd be nice if we, you know, if we had that kind of of tape playing in our head all the time. We could look back on the on the great catches we've we've made. But it occurred to me while I was watching that if something had happened uh, back oh, years and years ago, Super Bowl Thirteen. Do all of you know who Jackie Smith is? Do you remember Jackie Smith, one of the greatest tight ends that ever played football? And he will always be remembered, always, for the fact that he dropped a pass. His last year was with Dallas. He dropped a pass in Super Bowl thirteen against Pittsburgh and lost the game. And I thought, you know, if I were Jackie Smith, I'd 
you know, I'd play that tape over and over and over. I can still remember him lying on his back with a football lying on the turf in the end zone. And that's what he's remembered for. And some of you, the only thing you can remember when you play those tapes, you know, they're not highlights. They're a tape of all the failures, all the goofs, all the flubs, all the foul-ups, all the things you've done wrong. The fact that you're, you're, you're uh, somebody uh, read this just this past week. Somewhere, someone, every time they went to school in the morning, their mother would say, don't come back. Can you believe that? She meant it. And maybe you grew up that way and, and, and nobody cared. Nobody cared. But I want you to know that Jesus cares. He cares. He loves you. And once you understand that, you can sing back to him. Fairest Lord Jesus. You see, that, that, that hymn was taken from this, this song. Fairest Lord Jesus. Ruler of all nations, O thou of God and man the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thy, my soul's glory. Uh, I forgot the last line. How's it go? You know how it is. Yeah, there you go. You know it better not. But you can say back to him, fairest Lord Jesus. You see, you can sing a love song to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending the Son, thank you for coming. Thank you for being who you are, loving us just as we are, caring about us in all of our, in all of our sin, in all of our weakness, our helplessness. Thank you for your tender compassion that rises every morning on us just as surely as the sun rises. It's the promise of your word. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name.